So I know as we're rounding out through our Lent period, heading towards Holy Week, you know, we've spent a lot of time talking about the practices of Lent, right? That's, we thought we'd whittle it down to things that we talked about on Ash Wednesday and how they help us distill our calling. We clear all of the other stuff out of the way and we focus on what really matters. And that helps us to live as Easter people going forward after Holy Week. But I also know that that can feel a little naive at times. If singular actions on their own might not make it very easy to see how this world works and our practices work going forward. I imagine it's kind of like a really complex 1,000-piece puzzle. You know, you can see the end goal on the box, right? And you say, that is what I'm going to do. This is one I actually just bought the family because, you know, we like to be miserable. Can you imagine trying to do that with, uh, with all of those color gradations, right? You know, sometimes the most complex puzzles, right, can be really simple designs. Can you imagine, and I know that they make these, you know, a thousand-piece puzzle that's nothing but all black or all white. You know, you're just looking at a box of blankness, and you've got to figure out how to put it together. But still, you know, you, you take the most complex puzzle with the most simple design, and you stare at it, you say, that's my goal. And what do you do next, right? You tear open the box and you dump all the pieces out. And that's a whole other story. But I know if I talk to every single one of you today, you all have varying processes in which to achieve your final goal, getting that puzzle put together. Some of you, I imagine, now this is my camp, you start working on the edges, right? You separate out the edge pieces and the center pieces, and you just kind of work your way around. And then once you got that edge piece, you're hoping somewhere along the line, you're going to get some of those center pieces by magic to come together. It's sort of a miracle moment. The others of you might start that way, right? You'll take the whole dump of a puzzle, and you'll just say, all right, I'm going to figure out pieces that connect over time, right? And sometimes those strategies will overlap each other, right? You don't just necessarily stick to one piece, but you're trying to work all sorts of puzzles, angles together to create that big picture in the end. And eventually, with enough patience and effort, most of the time we get there, right? Most of the time. Because I don't know if I've got the patience for this. I'll let you know in a couple weeks. That's the thing, I don't know how you get here without some sort of meta view, right? I don't know how you ultimately get to figure out all the puzzle pieces that line up with one another until you've got a thousand foot view, until you've got a picture in which you can look at. And so all these disciplines have to have some bigger picture so that as puzzle pieces start coming together, you can reference back to something. And if I were going to work out a puzzle based on today's text, I think I would like to have a picture of the banquet after this scene. Now, we're not privy to that. Scripture doesn't give us that. However, Abraham Boss, a French artist who was active in the, in the, uh, in the 1600s, actually did have the imagination to do it. And so there is an etching of his that imagines the, uh, the, the banquet they look very French to me. So, so we can imagine what this may look like. And I really would love to have been at that banquet, right? The father is so overjoyed 
that what was lost has been found. So moved that he's joined this like grand, luscious, beautiful, the, the fattest, the fatted calf, the best robes, the best rings. Everything is laid out. This is a party of all parties. And I hope, and I'm betting, that the eldest son got over himself and is there too. And they're all celebrating together. Family that had been thrown apart is now back together again. This final piece of reconciliation and hope is beautiful. What we all want. What we'd want to see in the end of any sort of dramatic story like we see about the prodigal son, we like to see the resolution where everyone's together. But even in the text, do you see how much work had to get done to get there? Do you see how many pieces of the puzzle had to start coming together before we got to this pretty picture? You know, the first thing, right, on Ash Wednesday, we talk about self-reflection. Well, self-reflection abounds here in this text, right? The prodigal son, which I'm embarrassed to admit this, but I had never actually literally looked up the definition of prodigal because I just figured it was the son, right? I'm embarrassed to say that, but I finally looked up. So if none of you have ever actually looked for the definition of prodigal, don't worry, you're not the only one. But prodigal literally means reckless with spending. So we get it. You know, this is basically the story of this son. He goes out, he takes his wealth, and the Greek gives us a sense that he's just generally undisciplined, right? Jesus is telling us that he's just scattered shot. He doesn't care where he spends the money. The illusion in the verb here is basically just like you're taking money and you're just tossing it, right? Sort of the Oprah version of, my, you know, you, you get some money and you get some money and you get some money, and eventually our prodigal son runs out of money to toss around. And then a fast was foisted upon him because of this severe famine. Now, he didn't choose to fast from his resources. Those just kind of happen. It does does sort of give a little bit of uh, credence here in the text for an emergency savings account, right? And then he has a moment at his lowest when he comes to himself, literally. That's what the text says. He gets a hold of himself, and he has a required moment of self-reflection, precipitated by the worst of circumstances, yes, that were some of his responsibility. Yes, he spent his money wastefully, apparently, but some not. He didn't choose to set up the famine. And so that moment of self-reflection brings him to a moment of penitence and repentance. And like we talked about before when we talked about this a couple weeks ago, they can have similar meanings, but they're also different. Penitent as a word means that he's willing to be transactional. And you can see that. He says to his father, hey, I'm willing to work in the fields, right? I'm willing to be one of your hired hands. Just please let me come home. He's had a penitent moment. But also, he seems to be repentant. He has a transformational moment. No longer is he the prodigal son. I'd really like to start naming this the no longer prodigal son story, right? Because really, that's the point here. He's no longer the prodigal son. His contrite heart changes his actions. And not only is he penitent, but he's also repentant. And if you recall 
from that sermon a couple weeks ago, Jesus argues that if you can't get to that moment, if you can't get to a place where you're penitent or repentant, you might actually lose out on deep love and deep grace that is on the other side of that moment. Do you remember the woman in the alabaster jar? And Jesus said, you know, when folks feel the depth of their brokenness more, they feel the depths of grace even more. So you can see we have all of our Lenten story all kind of bundled up here, and then we get to see these beautiful works of love, don't we? And there's two important works of love here that really are represented through the Father's actions. To the no longer prodigal son, we see this lavish love coming after repentance. It would have been easy to presume, and, and as a father, and as I, like I could feel the sense of, well, tough luck, kid. I gave you all your inheritance. Not my fault you didn't know how to manage it. You know, I, mean, I think about this, right? You take, you take an inheritance, and it's like, you know what, I, you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to invest it in this really cool product, right? And, and, and it's like, oh, great, and then it loses all the money, right? And then all of a sudden it's like, well, now I need to go back home because now I've got nothing. Yeah, you can hear the story of somebody saying, oh, hey, these are your decisions. This is your choice. This is your responsibility. You can't come back. But instead, the father offers the choicest of all that there is to offer without even a single hesitation. The word here for compassion, it's one of my favorite words in all of the New Testament. It is a word that means that the father is so overcome with deep feeling for his son that it's like his guts are torn out. It is deep, guttural, deep in the bowels, feeling towards this person. It is so deep, it is painful. And he is so overwhelmed by this compassion for his son that his feet cannot help but sprint out to meet him when he's still far away. And this is the dude that screwed everything up. And that's the easy one, right? We like that. That's an easy one to say, oh, that's totally a work of love. But there's also a deep work of love with the elder son. Because it seems like the elder son knows himself pretty well, right? He works hard, man. And he feels like that's worth something. He stood up tall all the time. He did what he was supposed to do, even to the point of accusing himself as a slave, which, goodness gracious, man, get a hold of yourself. And so now, he is super unrepentant. He wants what's his. He hadn't even gotten a goat to hang out with his buddies. And now, like, this guy who had, like, screwed up everything, gets a fatted calf and really nice robes and everything. What is this about? And moreover, if you notice this, and I think this is great, because for goodness sakes, we've probably been on both sides of this, he doubles down on his brother. You notice that? In the early part of the reading, there is literally nothing related to prostitution, right? The words that are used that Jesus describes the prodigal at that moment is really just spendthrifting, right? But yet the brother decides to insert this little piece. Did you know, Dad? Right? If any of you have
have siblings, you know this argument, right? This is, this, is no new, this is no new territory. It might not be prostitution, but I mean, listen, I've seen this all the time in my own kids, eight and six. You'd think each of them were destroying the house at any given moment, right? So not only am I the good kid, the eldest son says, but that other person is really, really, really bad. And you notice what the father's response is? The response is just as loving, I think, to the no longer prodigal, but it's different. It's a gentle reminder that while, yes, he has much, it's not just his alone. This whole idea of all that is mine is yours means that it is still the father's, not just the son's. It's also a reminder that resurrection, life coming from death, is something so important that it transcends everything else that could possibly happen, and it is worth celebrating deeply and meaningfully for. So this should beg the question for us here amidst the second work of love, what is the elder son so blinded to in order for him to not realize that he may be just as lost as the prodigal was? Perhaps more on the nose, this is a question for many of us who feel as if we were the ones who have lived well and been blessed with good life, especially as we may put our celebration on those who we see as squanderers. For instance, why should we care about and celebrate the sobriety of the addict when we're the ones who have stayed clean? Why should we provide for those who were squanderers when we've worked really hard? Why should we care about folks receiving a, a, a living wage when, you know what, they didn't go to school long enough? They didn't do enough. Why should we rejoice for those who are on the edges when we've happily been able to maintain ourselves in the center? Because at some point we're reminded that what we work for is not all ours. And we see that perhaps in these moments when we'd really like to double down on those folks that we don't feel like celebrating because we want ours, and we may have to repent from that as well. And trust me, in a sermon like this, I am as much speaker and receiver. To not do so, sit and just be the grumpy eldest, means we're just going to stare at a puzzle box and not understand why the pieces have not suddenly come together for us. What if we did work on putting the puzzle pieces together? What if we actually did all the work? At our session meeting on, on Tuesday, as we've been working through some devotions, I brought one of my favorite books of all time that talks about worship and and mission and all of that. This is one of the quotes from that book. The liturgical assembly is never just what it appears to be. It also points to the eschatological reality beyond itself, to the purpose of God in Christ for the world and its people for the whole created order. This is what it means to call the liturgical assembly symbolic. Well, what does that all mean, right?
that's a great puzzle to put together, isn't it? Everyone come, comes together. Again, I'm really betting on the elder son to have kind of gotten over himself, and he's there too. Although I can't tell in the painting if that's the case or not. But what would it be like if everybody gathered together? Everybody was forgiven. Everybody was released from their penitential needs and they were given grace. Well, that's a pretty amazing world, isn't it? Now, I like to talk about 04, a world where everyone respects each other's ways. I always forget the back half of that, but you remember. That's what we do here every Sunday. That's what we do together all the time. When we gather and we talk about these things and we enact these things through prayer and response and singing, we get to create a world that looks a bit like this. Now, sure, when we're here every Sunday and we do these prayers and we do these practices, it is like staring at a bunch of puzzle pieces without an ultimate goal, right? That would be really hard to do if all you've got is a thousand puzzle pieces and you don't know what the final picture looks like. But here, now, each and every day can be an expression of the best puzzle pieces we can find of a beautiful scene like this. And so maybe some of you are edge layers. Be an edge layer. Maybe some of you are central putter-togethers. We'll do that. Don't think for a second that you don't have to do the work, that you've worked too hard on a lot of other pieces, a lot of other puzzles, so why should you have to work on this one? Because this is the one that matters. And these symbols that we work in show a better world. Show a world where the not-so-prodigal anymore is forgiven. And the one who's still lost, even though has never left, can find grace as well. There's how it all comes together. So don't give up on these practices once we head towards Holy Week. Because there's so much beauty to discover. Thanks be to God.